You're listening to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. This episode, we're going on quite a journey thanks to the voracious viewing habits of my latest guest. His name is Carlos Valladares, and he's a writer I've had the pleasure of editing in the past, and now also a graduate student at Yale University. Carlos is working on a project about the director Jerry Schatzberg, So our conversation starts there with his films Scarecrow and Honeysuckle Rose. Then it's off to the races with Alain René's time-twisting film Je T'aime, Je T'aime, the Looney Tunes cartoons, the warmly detailed New York movies of the late Joan McLean Silver, the incredible experimental work of Kevin Jerome Everson, and for a grand finale, Bill Gunn's great lost studio film Stop. Let's go to the conversation. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. We're talking about not a festival this time. We're diving back into the riches of just day-to-day viewing. I always love hearing what people are, are watching. I mean, there are terrible things about being confined at home to a large extent, but one other thing is that you just end up having these long stretches of time where you can have these viewing projects. You get a really interesting juxtaposition between different bodies of work often. And for this week's episode, uh, I'm very pleased to be joined by someone who hasn't been on the podcast yet. I've always liked his writing and have published it. And so I'm very pleased to be welcoming Carlos Valladares. Welcome, Carlos. Hello. Welcome. I'm so happy to be on the podcast and talking about the cinema. Yes, this is a all cinema zone, although occasionally we'll also just whine about uh, other things, or at least I will, but uh, I'll try to keep that to the minimum. <laughs> you have such a, a terrific list of things you've been watching lately and, and writing and researching and working on. But just to start off with, I wonder if you could just tell listeners a bit about what you've been working on generally. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm a second year PhD student right now. I guess is my official job um, at Yale uh, University uh, up in New Haven, and I'm doing it in uh, film and uh, in art history. I'm also doing uh, freelance criticism where I can find it. Usually, I have a regular film column with Gagosian Quarterly, uh, where I've written most recently about people like Bill Gunn, Kelly Reichardt's new film First Cow. Kevin Jerome Everson and Jacques Demy and Jerry Schatzberg, who is going to be the subject of my dissertation in the form of a, a documentary about the films of what I think is the very underrated Jerry Schatzberg. That is a excellent subject for a documentary. It's almost surprising that someone hasn't made one already. Um, I, I remember talking with him at one point for like a very specific purpose. And I just wished I could have kept on talking because he's just full of stories and has intersected with so many, uh, so many different people. What, what was the kind of in- inception of that project? First of all, he, yeah, he's filled with a lot of stories. This man has lived like literally 95 years and he like can remember so many different kinds of moments and just like talking with him it's just this kind of like non-chronological like cornucopia of just like listening to like the past hundred years of history and culture and art just like embodied so it's it's been it's been great talking with him in that regard I had like a friend of a friend of a family friend who like put me in touch with him when I first moved to New York about a couple years ago and thought that we would get along and be able to talk with one another uh and we did and when I first met him I had only seen Scarecrow 
which was like one of my favorite films like ever it's such a masterpiece of proportions that film like the the dexterity of how he's able to like modulate emotion and mood and all these different kind of things and that was about two years ago when i first got in touch with him and when the pandemic started it's like when we actually got to talking about the possibility of me making a documentary about him because i'd already done an article with Gojin on Schatzberg's films. Um, and in conjunction of, with that, we presented a conversation between him and Harmony Corinne and me at, uh, at the Metrograph in like November of 2019 uh, after a screening of Scarecrow. And then it was like after that, that I just, I started like thinking like, there's so much that I couldn't cover with this like one article that like I didn't feel like could be said in just, words you know so I, I that's when i started thinking about like well maybe i could make a film that elaborates on some of this and like showcases a lot of the unpublished photographs in his vast vast archive of work um most of which has never seen the light of day and a lot of photographs that he took that he's never been much of a person to kind of take obvious credit for as in like abaddon or like irving penn or someone like that as a major american photographer it is an opportunity to get people more in touch with that side of his work, in addition to all the films, which I feel like are in general so undertalked, considering like their very high quality of performance and composition and rhythm and so on. Yeah. The, the run in the 70s is, is, yeah, each one of them has, has its own spot in the 70s pantheon in different ways. And then, you know, even beyond that, I mean, with Honeysuckle Rose is a film I've, I've, I've screened and he, he graciously came and, and presented it. And that movie is just like a country song, basically. It's just like a country song mm-hmm. in movie form. Yep. Yep. You know, also with Willie Nelson's somewhat, I mean, it has to be said, unusual, but absorbing screen presence as an actor. Yeah. He has a really good touch with like Nelson in that one. And like, sometimes it's like, it's it makes me think like that film plus like for some reason I also put in like the category of like Tulane Blacktop because um, that also obviously has like the the two um, musicians Dennis Wilson and James Taylor in these first time kind of roles and they kind of like have this intriguing blankness to them that is kind of picked up in like how Willie Nelson isn't really kind of like underplays a lot of his performance because it's like a mix of like unsteadiness but also it weirdly fits the character yeah no i I really like honeysuckle rose not as much probably as the as the main four films i would say that he did like between like 70 and 76 like puzzle of a downfall child then panic in ila park then scarecrow which won the palm door and then sweet revenge this like very weird like stockard channing vehicle where she's like this punky car thief aesthet who like has this whole philosophy about stealing cars and shit and it's just it's really just it's never talked about in like to the same heights as like the first three which is why i'm bringing it up it's such a wonderful kind of like four film suite really yeah sweet revenge definitely is just never comes up puzzle of a downfall child also that was like earlier on in like my repertory madness was a kind of grail because it was so rarely screened i remember trekking out to to momi to see that um i guess it's a little Mm. easier to to watch now but we might be getting ahead of ourselves since um we can return to this but i I know there was actually another movie 
that you've been pouring over uh, recently. Mm. And actually, coincidentally, I'm I'm jumping off from uh, Puzzle of a Downfall Child, which is yeah one of one of the more interesting kind of portraits of like fractured viewpoint in a way. And the movie that you're about to talk about is also fractured, although in sort of different ways. That movie is. Oh, well, it's Je t'aime, Je t'aime, which I feel like I've been bugging so many of my friends to like and haranguing them to watch for the past couple months, like after directed by Alain René uh, and written by Jacques Sternberg. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, this this like I, I first watched it around like August when Metrograph, when it transitioned to um, online streaming they showed Jetem Jetem and I'd never seen it before. I'd heard about it and I I wasn't really expecting to be as completely obsessed with it as I ended up being. <laughs> it was like kind of a shock to me and it's really defined a lot of how I have been kind of like mulling through time in this, these bizarre moments that were just kind of, that are just kind of like ticking away for us right now. I mean, first of all, like I ha- of course I haven't seen it in like a theater. So I feel like, a lot of the immersiveness that I would have like gotten and like obsession has been less tempered than it usually would have been. But like, I don't know something about watching it alone and like huddled in like in my bed, just like everything is dark and laptop just made it that much more what it was like revealing that much more like melancholic and just incurably sad. And I love like the late 1960s fractured style. I don't know what you would, call this i think of it like also in the terms of like richard lester's petulia and obviously schatzberg's puzzle of a downfall child in the sense of just time is just completely out of whack and haywire and there's like the editing scheme which goes backward and forward in time but not in this like very precious like obvious christopher nolan-ish kind of way which i feel like audiences have just kind of gotten used to nowadays but there's something about Jetem Jetem, that is much more, the montage is so much more pointed and delicate and introspective because it's not flashy. It's not a visually stunning film necessarily. And it's not a film that has like profound zingers like every like two or three minutes that like you're supposed to mull over and like wax you over the head with its like obvious intellectual nonsense. Just something that I've just been like the title, like Jetem Jetem, just been returning to over and over again. It's like kind of like this weird bomb. <laughs> what generally is the is, is the outline of the movie? It starts off in the aftermath of this writer named Claude, who is played by Claude Riche, the French actor. So his character has the same name as him. And it's it starts off in like the aftermath of like an attempted suicide. Um, but we don't really, he doesn't really... Renee or Sternberg doesn't really let us know what exactly the circumstances were of this suicide. He opens up, it opens up in like a hospital, this very antiseptic hospital. And he, he gets discharged from the hospital and he gets pulled over by these like menacing looking scientists in like this cab. It's, it's never really fully stated, but it's like in Brussels and Belgium. And they pick him up. They ask him like, do you want to be part of this uh, experiment that we're doing in this like remote part of Brussels, like that has to do with like the nature of time and whatnot. And he says, well, like, you know, I don't have anything worth living for. So sure. <laughs> um, so he gets <laughs> into the, he gets into the cab 
and they basically explain to him that they've come up with this device, this like weird globular pumpkin looking device that allows the organism who is within the device to go back one minute in time. And they've only tested it on mice. So he would be the first um, subject, the first human subject to go back in time. Uh, and they've picked him, obviously, because he's suicidal and he has really nothing to worth living for right now. Again, n- none of this is explained why he's in this position anyway. And, like, as these things happen, like, the, the experiment backfires and he gets lost, basically, in his memories. And in particular, the memories of his very contentious, broken seven-year relationship with this woman named Katrine who's played by Olga Georges Picot, who was like a new French star and didn't do anything really major after this. This is like her only major film. Actually, her only, the only film that she had done up to this point is another film that's all about kind of like retracing the aftermath of a relationship in non-chronological order, which is um, Stanley Donan's masterpiece, Two on the Road. She's like one of the French girls that Audrey Hepburn meets up with at the very beginning of the film. But she, that's like a bit role. But I just, I just, it's it's funny that she's also in this like this masterpiece about out of sync time and relationships and whatnot. It's just fascinating how much Renier was able to work with a conception of memory that just gets chopped up through editing and to a certain extent still isn't really recognized to, to how pioneering he, he was in, in doing that. I mean, mm-hmm. it's almost like everything mm-hmm. kind of people think of uh, last year at Marion Bad. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, Muriel is also pretty amazing in, in that regard. In each movie, it's doing something a, a little different. O- originally, I always thought that he was kind of finding a cinematic equivalent to like the new novel basically um but then i mean it's really his own it really ends up being his his own thing entirely and obviously he's obsessed with this idea of the memory as this labyrinth that you can actively get lost in and um this kind of like i don't know psychological hole of, of mirrors through some whatever the trauma is whether it's like algerian war or i, I don't know mm. just being a sick soul of Europe. <laughs> um, yeah, you know. yeah. His people are just so incurably neurotic, I feel, and just like, you just see <laughs> yeah. them suffer in so many different situations. And yeah, there's this like reputation, I guess, that he's gotten like based off of the very early films of him being this like very closed off, like highbrow intellectual. Who's, like, and I, I mean, the later stuff is not that really at all. Like he's like smoking, no smoking and all these like very playful this other side to him that that really embraces quote-unquote low culture um and like kind of like fucks up with that kind of dichotomy just as he fucks up with the dichotomy of, of space and time in like so much of his work and i think especially so in jatem jatem which is kind of like this manifesto for himself and you know recruiting sternberg who is a who would be called like a, a i guess he specialized in science fiction um, you know, the other kind of like trashed on like populist art form of like the 20th century, along with like cinema and jazz and its early kind of inception. But what gets me is like the fact that like he's basically stuck in this relationship where it, it becomes clear that he's not as good by himself, really, as he is with this woman who like, even though 
is incurably sad and all this stuff like it's kind of revealed at the end that these both people are just kind of like chasms in like the march of like modernity in like the 1960s it's also like interesting when it comes out in like 1968 you know like the student revolts uh in paris and coming out in this like background this tumult of like questioning all of the various like you know masters of knowledge and toppling them and this very quiet sensual melodrama about time comes out in the middle of it and kind of like playtime almost or like it gets like washed aside uh, a little bit in context of like larger touchstones like La Chinoise by Godard or something like that but it's I don't know like it, I'm glad that like Kino Lorber for instance has like brought it out on Blu-ray which is how I got to rewatch it and rewatch it so many times yeah, that that's another. I mean, I feel like I'm always saying this or that film is something I was trying to see for years and then finally saw. But that is genuinely another movie that I was waiting for a long time to screen, and then it finally did sometime in like early 2000s. And I remember going to going to see it, and yeah, it you really ping pong along with it when you're watching it. But I wanted to just pick up on something you said uh, that was really interesting for me: the idea that. You know, I mean, a lot of people, when they think of memory in movies, they turn to like Christopher Nolan's experiments on on Mm -hmm. this ludicrous studio level with, you know, Inception, uh, for example, or before that, you know, Memento. I mean, everyone knows knows these movies, but I, I wonder what is it about those movies that feel poppy in a way that the René movies don't what what is it that distinguishes like the barrier to entry for like a Renier movie uh versus even something like Petulia um mm. versus the Limey right which I think Soderbergh described as get Carter meets Renier and mm-hmm. you know because as you said like Jetem Jetem is is such a softly sensual sort of work but it's it's still a movie that I don't know how do you think someone used weaned Nolan would react to it I mean, it's there's so many things that go into it, I feel. Like, well, I mean, one of the things I feel like is Nolan, unlike Rene, is I feel absolutely not interested in history. He's making things in this kind of vacuum. All of the films that he makes are in this kind of very literalist, very de-eroticized vacuum. Whereas Rene, I think, is so in tune with so many of, like, not just, like, history but like the gaps that one leaves in like remembrance there's this stunning moment in Jatem Jatem where it's like a minute long scene that's not made much of but Claude is on the train with Katrine and they're looking out like on a train moving through like the European countryside and they look they look out like the window and he says yeah and that's where I liberated uh the camp and like it's just like this one line and it's never it's never brought up again like the fact that he was the soldier, the camp is never named, but there's this, uh, this like very disturbing kind of like association of these things like liberation of camp. And then there's a very crucial plot point at the end that involves gas. And when it gets to that point, it's hard not to think of Night and Fog, his 30 minute film about memory and the Holocaust and 
I feel like purely by his ever-present, like, historicization of, like, where he is in time, like, there is something much more concrete, I think, about the kind of ways that he, that Rene integrates all of these different kinds of, like, uh, psychological disturbing, disturbment, uh, and, like, love, history, time, exile, the nine-to-nine grind, and so on. For me, like, a lot of what bugs me about Nolan is just how obvious like and literal he is about everything about every like it's always about time like and he never lets you forget that like the Hans Zimmer score that just like drones on for like hours and hours it's giving you this master narrative of time whereas I feel like Renee's films are always this constant interrogation of time that never considers itself like the final word I feel like there's always this kind of open-ended dialogue in terms of all the themes that I just laid out right now that never feels really conscious that of course, time is one of his main preoccupations, but it's never like he enters into the film and to the script level thinking like, I'm going to make a film about time and I'm going to make a film that's like about the dissolving of a relationship and it's all going to be about time, time, time with a capital T. I never get the sense of that. I think like he's always <laughs> approaching, he's always approaching each little mini scene on its own terms. Like there's this wonderful bizarre scene that lasts like a minute long between Katrine and Claude. That's about how cats need to rule the world. And like, this is like her explaining to him why cats are like the ultimate thing that are going to outlive us even longer than cockroaches and all this other thing. If it comes in between the middle of like two very melodramatic scenes involving suicide and kind of, and it breaks up the moroseness of the film with this beautiful little lyrical rumination on cats and catdom and felineness in more literalist films, like there is no kind of allowing for that kind of gap, which can't be like really integrated into the larger point of whatever it is the film is trying to make. And I love moments like that in a lot of the films. Petulia is full of them. The tuba, like at the beginning of the film, that George C. Scott's trying to return to the the Chinese um, pawn shop in Chinatown in San Francisco. And this like farcical kind of like way that he's holding the the tuba things about texture like the texture of the daily really is what i'm like trying to like get at that someone like nolan just like i feel like just is absolutely not interested in and like more power to him like he get he can like do his like his rants about uh you know warner brothers not giving him the proper release or whatever but it's like i don't know i i know i know where i stand in the whole kind of like <laughs> interesting time warp movie thing it's true. I mean, he's he's working on a level of spectacle that tends to keep yeah. interiority out of the equation. Right. I end up finding myself, I don't know if I would say defending him, but sort of uh, still marveling at him because I just think of, you know, someone like in the 19-teens, you know, like Griffith or just like Cabaria or something, you know, just where mm-hmm. there's such pleasure being had in just switching between different stuff. You know, there's like different mm-hmm. lines of narrative, whether or not any of them make sense. And I think he has that on some level. Mm. And yeah. I don't know, there's something like something like that in his DNA. And I don't know, like listening to lots of warp records in the 90s or something. Definitely a different animal than Renier, who just has just clearly has like the wounds of the 20th century. Th- those ruptures are always um there in the, in the movies that we were just talking about and i mean obviously later on like something like wild grass you know i mean i'm not i don't know yeah, about that. yeah. but i mean no jetem jetem i know i have that blu-ray somewhere i just have to dig it up 
I can borrow mine. I can, I can, I can lend it to you. Just put it in the pumpkin-shaped machine, and I'm sure it'll get to me somehow. Yes. Oh my gosh. I know. I mean, the Cinderella thing too is so like all these like references and kind of floating little remembrances of like fairy tales and that get woven into his films. Like I, I adore that. For, for the longest time, Muriel was actually my favorite of his films. But ever since like watching this one, I'm just like. I don't know. It's a different one every day. I think my favorite, Rene. That seems like an appropriate moment to pivot into the time-space continuum, away from Je t'aime, Je t'aime, and into the world of, dare I say it, Looney Tunes? Oh my gosh. Well, you've, you've said it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I've been watching this alongside um, a lot of these, like Je t'aime, Je t'aime, and... Also Park Lanes, randomly, which Criterion Channel just released on streaming Kevin Jerome Everson's eight-hour mammoth film about labor, um, which is very trance-like and hypnotizing to watch, really. But yeah, I've been watching the Looney Tunes corpus, borrowing a friend's HBO Max account um, to watch them because I found on Twitter that like apparently a good majority of them were on... Um, hbo max and i was like is this the thing that will finally get me to like look at this like streaming site um and it was and it's like it doesn't have everything there's like weird gaps which they don't tell you about like um first of all they like organize it on hbo max and like these very weirdly designated like seasons and i think like each season pertains to a year in when the looney tunes were made so like season one is like 1930 uh, Sing, Darnia Sing, and all these like really very bad Disney knockoffs that they were trying to do when they were trying to emulate Disney in like 1930. And then they have like the latest horrible, like I, I watched like five minutes of it and I could not bear it, like the horrible, kitschy new Looney Tunes that like are just like slow on the draw and they don't have like the manic balls to the wall rapidity and bizarreness of like the kind of classic, I guess, Looney Tunes period from like the mid thirties up until like the early sixties or so or mid sixties or so, because I watched them when I was growing up and it's not even a kind of like return to childhood kind of thing. They're just like really fucking good. Like I did, I get so much inspiration from just like looking at these like little fun little objects that you would watch before the movie. And they would probably be better than whatever movie that they were tagged with that Warner brothers was making in like the forties. It's true. They just sometimes pack so much like visual ingenuity and like laying down these new rules of physics that it, anything that comes after, yeah. I can only imagine what it would be like to watch some kind of, you know, middle of the road programmer after seeing just these rubber band like realities. Yeah, I like in particular, like a lot of them, like they were famously called the, like the termite terrace. Um, they were they were holed up in this like small little like studio in like the back lot of warner brothers um which was like notoriously cramped and hot and there was no air conditioning in there and and you know this is where you get like i guess what like manny farber would call like termite art of like the period this kind of like go for broke work a day kind of things that they're not thinking will have any kind of lasting impression beyond like the couple of days that they run in a movie theater in a particular week and they have six weeks to make each of these things, like the directors and a whole crew of layout and background and animation people. And of course, Mel Blanc, who 
I, w- I mean, maybe this is something to like openly musing, but I'd love to write something about like Mel Blanc. I feel like I feel like he's so underrated, obviously, as like an actor in general, like voice actors in particular in general, just like no one pays attention to them. But like, weirdly enough, when I was like a precocious little kid, like I knew like the names of like Dawes Butler and like uh, June Foray and all these like these people who had to like come up with like upwards of like 30 or 40 or 50 different characters and voices like and they were each distinct and like that is an art that like no one is really has written about in like really much depth like not even like people who like champion like cartoons in that kind of like way like farbers or whomever yeah i i have a kind of long-term project where i'm I'm writing about voices right now so i am entirely on uh, with you on on that um it's like populating a room, you know, I mean, you know, and, and it's, it's also mm. the thing you sometimes remember most, I think as a child almost is, is the, is the way people sound, you know, someone's gravelly voice, you know, someone's warm voice, someone's just mean voice mm-hmm. and you can't even put a finger on why it sounds mean to you, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, Mel Blanc, I mean, it's, it's just like he was like filling up a, a, a bus or like a party or like a Thanksgiving dinner every single time. It's just they're so vivid in that way. Each of the turns of voice he, he comes up with. Uh, it's it's really remarkable. I was you know, the other thing I was thinking, because I did watch a few Looney Tunes, even though most of them are kind of seared in my brain from watching them. God knows how many times when, you know, my parents were trying to keep me out of the way. Mm-hmm. I just started wondering, what's the place of smoking? in all this um (laughs) is a casualty of like less smoking that we're missing out on on a lot of uh different weird you know degradations of voices that (laughs) that lead to some interesting voice i started thinking about that one i don't know yeah i like i one of my favorite of mel blank's voices the two voices which are just like smoking adjacent i guess like one of them is like hollering so it's, but it's not like the kind of like foghorn, leghorn kind of hollering. It's like, it's literally just his like regular voice, but just like hollering at the top of it. Like to the point it's so loud that you can't like, he can't possibly come up with some kind of character unless he's like Yosemite Sam, in which case he would constantly like lose his voice and couldn't do that. Um, but it's, it's, it's this voice that is at the top of the lungs and like, it's just so painful to like hear. And like, it's, it, but it's fucking hilarious. Like, there's there was this Porky Pig cartoon that I saw like it's like a mid 1930s one and I'm the only funny thing about this cartoon was like this the captain of this like boat where like Porky is the uh, oh it's called Porky the Gob um, from 1938 um, the only funny thing about Porky the Gob is this like voice that Mel Blanc does where he's where ex- exactly I just said like he's like hollering at the top of it and it's just you don't expect it from this like mousy ship captain. And it just shook me to my core when I first heard it. Um, and I loved it. But I, I mean, of course, I also think of like Eugene Pallet's voice too in like live action. The, that gravelly, really unsettling where it's like, you know, six feet deep almost like into the into the ground. Like so ultra mega bass kind of voice is kind of lost nowadays. I feel like, you know, in character acting and that kind of way and like how these like weird very like specifically mid-century kind of like habits would form these kind of like appendages of of texture that really enlivened the film or the work of art or whatever 
I mean, I'm sure there's there's obviously like different kinds of things that like could nowadays that like could come up with that. Like I feel like the shrunken screen is something that I feel like a lot of filmmakers could experiment with a little more. You know, like how Frank Tashlin was kind of like playing around and like mocking the size of like CinemaScope versus TVs and like will success spoil Rock Hunter. Some kind of like gag and like a comedy film nowadays that like has like making fun of like, I don't know, like the the endless scrolling on like Instagram or like TikTok. There was this movie at Sundance that's uh, another Romeo and Juliet uh, telling, mm-hmm. and it's completely in the world of uh, Instagram. That I mean, that's this that's the screen oh. basically, and uh-huh. and it kind of treats it treats Instagram as the kind of open stage, open like the public square basically, which is not an mm-hmm. uninteresting idea. You know, the way people are just kind of kibitzing um, with those uh-huh. rolling comments with an Insta Live. Yeah, this is gleaned from the little I was able to watch before I, I ran out of time. But anyway, that's yeah, it's true. There's more that could be done with that. Um, and just just going back to what you're saying about the the voices and part of what they do that's so funny is, and they clearly got a big kick out of just matching, you know, incongruous voices to to different shapes. Um, and I, I also mm-hmm. think that that's that's also just kind of like a feels like a very old school comedy thing to do like the, the little guy with the big voice or the big guy with the tiny voice and it's just so it's so simple but it's so funny still i mean i, yeah, I don't know yeah. why it's like very, yeah, it's like very like basic kind of like vaudeville shtick but it's it it it, it hits every time you know there's something <laughs> that's <right>. go old. <laughs> yeah yeah it's true then there's stuff that's just stone cold avant-garde classics basically like duck amuck mm-hmm or I mean I was dis- I was disappointed that they didn't have one of my favorite Chuck Jones Looney Tunes shorts, which is High Note, which like you should you should watch that like when you just it's it's up seven minutes and it's like there's no sound in it. It's it's a it's about an errant musical note on like a sheet of like music paper that is like drunk beyond repair, and this note is supposed to be like the 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 climactic note for this opening phrase of some famous classical uh, composition which i'm forgetting now the film is just about like the attempts of like the other notes to like uh sober up this like hopelessly drunk n- note this musical note and it's fucking weird it's hilarious like there's a reason i feel like why chuck jones is mostly singled out like above really great like craftsmen and like artists like frizz freling and Bob Clampett uh, and Frank, the cartoon Frank Tashlin. Cause like, I think like of all of them, I think he, he had the, it's obvious. Like when you see the cartoons, he had, the, especially in like the fifties and early sixties, he had the most fun with the constraints of Looney Tunes. Like he was the one who came up with like Roadrunner and Coyote, which is like the ultimate kind of like, let's see how many kind of like logical constraints we can put upon this world. And then like how many variations we can come up of like, the most screamingly repetitive and basic premise, which is that this bird is always going to be evading this coyote. And he came up with that and he comes up with like high note and duck amuck. There's, there's this like anarchic gleefulness in his like shorts, which gets tempered by like the rules, you know, that he like puts upon the shorts. Like there's this like really beautiful back and forth between the two. It's like, it's like, you know, it's not just like pure anarchy. Like a lot of people say with like, duck amok like there's like a there's like a reason and an order and a logic to it which makes it even funnier and even more lovely to kind of like ponder 
also the, the the innovations are often so basic. It's it's one of those things where it's like, well, how did you think of that? That's such a basic fundamental thing to do, like the freeze frame with the like exhibit arrow. Yeah. Yeah. How do you come up with that? You know, I mean, that sort of thing always gets me. It's funny to see them as like they develop and they get more and more kind of like reified and, you know, kind of the the opposite. I bet I'm thinking about it weirdly, perversely enough, but like the opposite trajectory of Rene, where he starts off very austere with his like feature films. And then he gets more and more open, like his world becomes more and more open to all these different kinds of like elements, like, uh, you know, pop music in the vein of like a Dennis Potter BBC series or something like that. Whereas like with at least with like the Roadrunners, the Roadrunner cartoons, um, it's like the opposite. It starts off a very kind of like scraggly, open kind of world. And as he like develops them over like the 50s and like the early 60s, they get progressively more sharp. Like the backgrounds become so much more simplistic. Like sometimes it's literally just like a road and like an errant rock. And that's it. That's like the entire background. And like a gag will like go on for like a minute in like an early 60s kind of like Chuck Jones uh, Roadrunner. Really honing down like getting the formal principles of this like world to like almost like this essentialist, very highly formalist perspective, which is like so, I mean, beautiful. And like the humor translates so damn well. Like it's like silent comedy, obviously. Like, like it doesn't require kind of like the shtick of like, I don't know, like, like Mel Brooks humor. I feel like is so specific to like people who like can speak English, but like this one, obviously like one of my most precious memories was like um, when I was visiting family in Mexico like a couple of years ago and like I showed my niece, my extended niece and nephew who were both like four and five. Like we just like spent a night just like watching basically like all the roadrunners we could find on like YouTube and daily motion and Vimeo and all that. And they, they, it was like a revelation for them. They, they, they were just like beside themselves. And when, when I thought they were getting sick of it, they were like, show another one, show another one. Um, and I kept just showing <laughs> them and they're just like, toppling over themselves with laughter so that, that brings me such obvious you know joy um to see that kind of like connection yeah uh, keying into the kind of liberated energy of of just anything anything goes everything's a toy everything can be played with um and i've, I've been watching some episodes of hilda lately of of, uh, of all things on netflix mm. and sometimes there's just like a some left field stuff in there that also has its own loony energy but yeah i mean the, the, the chuck jones um pretty 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 peerless so much of it is also just about animated form itself as well and um i oh, get totally. sick it's funny i get i get sick of that now if comedy is too much about you know self-conscious like overly ironic um, about its constraints and things, but I, I don't really care when it comes mm. to, to Roadrunner. It can be as ludicrous and self-conscious as it wants to be at that stage. Yeah, no. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's just trying to like get a rise out of like the the kids in the in the audience. But it's it's all about like all of this business behind the screen, like just noticing, like, but only like other animators or other people who are like attuned to this kind of sensual other world. The, the sudden drops like when like first like the feet like when he's like off the cliff or and it takes like many many seconds before like any kind of like like he actually falls like but like he's like touching the ground making sure oh no i'm not i'm not there and then the feet go and then the stomach goes and then the neck goes and then he like 
impossibly will like hold up like a, a sign that says help me and then like everything goes like it's just this this beautiful kind of like crescendo of movement and elasticity that yeah it's it's something that really could only be done in animation oh always a good source of comedy dawning awareness well so yeah those that's that's the looney tunes selection collection i'm not even gonna attempt to segue on that but yeah i'd love to hear about joan micklin silver which you've been sounds like you've been oh yes working your way through such a hard news to take like at the beginning of this this year the the news of her death and i was just watching i wrote a a piece for n plus one about her films and like just revisiting them and one of the strongest memories that i have um when i first moved to new york city was going to yona schimmel's kanish bakery on houston street oh yeah and like getting a cherry flavored cream cheese knish and a black and white egg cream and looking back and seeing the poster for Hester street, uh, like just like hanging like above, like uh, across from the, from the counter at Yona Schimmel's. And like, I was attracted to, to Yona Schimmel's cause it'd been around since 1905 and all that stuff. Um, and like, I would work there regularly for like the cu- first couple of weeks when I first moved to the city, like just like writing or like reading and, just like quietly talking it up with like the the owner and like whoever was like behind the the counter, and it's just like that like image of the poster just like lodged in my brain, and without ever having seen it uh, until like recently and revisiting it also like for this like a silver piece like it made me think a lot about like this kind of she she she's so good at working with what would typically we would one would consider like the hokey trappings of like a genre or for formula, like a formulaic model, like, Oh, like a film that's going to teach you about like immigration and emigration and the pleasantness of it. And, you know, like let's join the melting pot of America, but there's, there's always this other edge, you know, to like her, or like if she's doing like, um, she's asked to do like a, a sappy romantic comedy for like HBO with like, uh, Mary Tyler Moore and Robert Preston and, but she takes these assignments and just runs with them, you know, um, and like fills them out with the most loving textures and Carol Kane's like kind of like haunting face, but also like all of these, this like very close attention to ritual and gesture that is always present in her films was like captivating to me. There's like a moment in Hester Street where she's helping her son uh, like get prepared for school or like to, to go out. And it shows you every single move that she does to prepare her for school. Like she puts his cap on his head. She sneaks behind the, her husband's back to steal a box of kosher salt because he's not into superstition because he's like trying to be an American and um, like trying to like be part of the system, integrate into it. And she's like, she wants to like have like a piece of old, of the old world in her still and wants to instill it in her son. Um, and so she, she steals this like kosher salt. We see her steal the kosher salt. She sips the grains in it. She slips a little bit of a, a bit of each of it into the coat in the son's coat pockets. And then she says, the salt will keep the evil eye away. And she says it in Yiddish. Um, and just, it, it, it's, it's this lovely unadorned moment that just goes on for like a minute or something like that. And it f- feels like an eternity when you're watching it, where it becomes like almost like quasi realist you know there's there's endless moments of that in her films which i i'm very attracted to 
Yeah, I, w- I was just watching a little of Bernice Bob's Her Hair. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, that's one of my, and that's one of Shelley Duvall's best performances, even though it's not really mentioned. And because everyone brings up Altman and Kubrick, but, you know, she got one of her most finely modulated turns under uh, Joan Micklin Silver's direction um, with this, yep. this TV, this TV, um, installment of some some weird like pbs great lit- we're going to present great literature to the masses on tv and the first installment i guess was bernice bobs her hair but it's um it's so good and it's so faithful to the fitzgerald story you got the connection right the shelly duvall because i just read that i guess a lot of people have been reading the profile of her right right yeah, it's only what is it? You know, forty minutes long, um, but it's it's really one of the, and then Bud Court is in it, of course. You know, I I feel like he he's just like the progenitor for like a whole host of independent film uh, characters. Like twenty thirty years later, um, maybe some couple of mm. Whit Stillman characters too. But yeah, Shelley Duvall is just incredible. Also, various degrees of like understatement because i think a lot of people associate her with you know this kind of really out there presence but mm-hmm. here just there are these scenes you know where she just slips in a line here um or there and that there's just a, a real understated quality yeah again joan micklin silver and then between the lines is, is another one that i oh, was yeah. watching a year or two ago obviously somewhat I don't know if cathartic is the word, but definitely feeling the community a, a, a beleaguered, besieged uh, alt weekly. <laughs> yes, it's it's uh, one of those more now than ever kind of movies. As I was writing the Joan Micklin Silver piece, I got news of like the fact that um, like the guy who like quote unquote brought back the LA Weekly. They hired him to do the, the same thing with the Village Voice this year, and I obviously couldn't help thinking of the slimy little um, the guy in in between the lines, the the guy who they the, from corporate who like comes in and is like you know we have to f- like fire the star reporters played by John Hurd because he's he's too much of a rapscallion, he's too much he causes too much trouble, he's too much of a rebel and all this stuff, um, and it's like you know it's these things come in circles. I mean, it's an interesting story to be telling at that time in the 70s, too, you know, where, I mean, there's a certain amount of romanticism surrounding the, the publication it, itself, but she's she's not always going with the flow in terms of like a, a fashionably, you know, melancholic or, or alienated mood in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? In that realm, she's very closely related to Shelley Duvall who is very opposite. I feel like the very downturn that like a lot of like movies that we think of when we think of like the seventies, like panic in Needle park or Mikey and Nikki or like uh, parallax view, like very going against this kind of like doom trend, I guess um, both silver's work and Shelley Duvall's without forgetting like the, how much of a grind and a, and a job it is really to get up in the morning. Like they never forget that, but they're always like, they're focused on like the quieter, gentler, more less obviously like doom and gloom notes. For instance, like the chilly scenes of winter film for something that's so such a cutting take, you know, on like obsession and like male narcissism 
and relationships like it's really it distances you from like this kind of central relationship and it like you look at it from like a like this very interesting observational perspective the voiceover and this like faux cliche happy tv score that kind of gets like interpolated throughout the film she's like doing a really interesting thing with like distracting you from like the main fact of like the quote-unquote good guy who is just like cannot get over the fact that this this woman laura does not want to see him anymore you know yeah i'm curious which one after after seeing seeing her work what's your standout for you of the rest mm. i think it's the standout for i feel like a lot of people it's like crossing delancey there's so much loving texture and beauty and kind of detail in that film that just like you know it's like catnip for me that film like there's this one shot where she's like running or like jogging across the sign of like a kosher wine store. The, the sign says that like you can almost cut it with a knife or wine. Um, and I just love that. It's like this three second like exterior shot. You can tell like how loving the framing is and they wanted to get it just right, the right distance from it to like have it integrated within the larger narrative. But then it like pops up and it just kind of like takes your breath away. You know, I'm a sucker for a good um, uh, love story and like the resonances that it has with Moonstruck, another great masterpiece, uh, which came out the previous year in 1987, Crossing Delancey coming out in 88, or I think apparent how it dovetails with two people from like different walks of the life in New York City and, you know, getting together. Yeah, there's a real sense that, you know, at that point, we we were seeing some of the I don't know, final tellings of some of these stories of feeling connected mm. to the past. I don't know. It's almost like we're coming a little full circle. You know, what you were saying about Renee being connected still to history. Um, I mean, I, I'm not going to make some gross, dumb generalization, but there's just a real feel for that that connection to past generations there. Yeah. Crossing Delancey, um, it's a wonderful I don't know, wonderful, wonderful portrait. And yeah, I just feel like while I'm, whenever I'm watching it, while I'm watching it, I'm also just feeling a sense of loss throughout. I, I, yeah, I kind of wonder what it would have been like to see it like exactly then in, in, in the late 80s. Mm. So yeah, crossing Delancey, I feel bad that we didn't really get into the Kevin Jerome Everson. There is a kind of segue there potentially just in like really recording the warp and weft of experience in a very fine-grained way. Yeah, yeah. So I, I wrote this piece about uh, Kevin Jerome Everson's films for Gagosian Quarterly. And basically, I just, I, I love the guy's vision. I love how he, what he's interested in is like, what I kind of like called like topography love. Like covering a terrain without any kind of like facileness to it. He's always grounded in these areas of of the intersections of like blackness and labor that I feel like a lot of U.S. filmmakers and critics just like want to just skim over. But he's always constantly aware of them. Like he's constantly evading every single then label that one could possibly use to to pin his work into some kind of you know logical reasonable order. It skirts experimental cinema. It skirts avant garde cinema. It skirts black cinema. U.S. cinema. 21st century cinema and all this thing while being completely kind of like, like Renee, but like, you know, formally it's, it's, it's a, it's, you know, 
uh, a little more daring, just like going out of time and using found footage that like he compiles of like, for instance, like a, a 1970s uh, Black Beauty pageant, using that to really demolish all of these very dangerous, staid notions of what is natural and what is real. And I was just struck, I think, like with like Park Lane's, his eight hour film about the making of a bowling lane, which is so, like, what? Like who, I can guarantee you no, no person has thought for longer than 10 seconds when they're the inside, like a bowling lane on a date, like, huh, I wonder how long it took, like it take to make the gutter. Like, and like, who made that? And like, where does it come from? <laughs> but like, really, like, it takes eight hours to watch for one. And even though there are moments in it where like your attention is really tested, it's like, okay, another one of these, like there's still something so very moving about seeing like the evocation of labor and how much it takes really to look at like how these kind of parts get assembled and made to create this little spectacle of like bourgeois entertainment. But it's not, there's never like a explanation for why we're supposed to be here. There's no like, There's no documentary-ish voiceover that explains how any of it gets made. We are left alienated as much as, because none of Everson's work is in the business of explaining to you what is happening. He's like really kind of like playing with the image and like what one can glean from the image in very interesting ways. And he said like he's in the business of creating like capital A art. For me, at least, like my own allergy is to like, films which are like capital a art but there's something about when when everson consciously says that and then like looking at the work that he makes there is a very distinct like it's not lined up even though he's consciously in the business of making art what he creates is very kind of unstable unruly interested in like what we can't represent and like in the traces of like physical experience that just uh are are so attractive about movies it's impossible really to kind of come up with like an all encompassing overview of like Everson's films. And it's kind of like a boring task to do that because he has like over a hundred films, a lot of shorts and a a handful of features now. And they take place across various locations of like the U S South, but also like Northern U S locations like Mansfield, Ohio, uh, where his home, where his hometown is always focused on like a series of uh, African-American subjects, like doing a variety of like activities and whatnot. And it's impossible to really capture the totality of them. You just have to start watching them and just like go along the journey that he kind of takes you in this kind, this kind of world of bodies of time, of fluidity of blackness of work. And it's just, it's just a remarkable project that he set upon himself you know, I wish like a lot of people really should be like paying attention to what's happening. Like second run um, video in the UK just released uh, a set of Kevin Jerome Everson films on Blu-ray, which is great. A lot of his films are on Criterion channel now, like not just Park Lanes, the eight hour film, but also these collaborations that he did with uh, Claudrina and Harold who's a historian at the, um, the University of Virginia, where uh, Everson is a, is a professor of, uh, where he teaches filmmaking there. And the, the two got together and made this, like, this very intriguing series 
of films that are centered around black university experience. They're like these like very short films. Like one of them is about a running back. I guess he explains what he's doing and like the path that he got to like a college running back um, where he got to, but it's not, it's not letting you into interiority or individuality or subjectivity as like is commonly perceived, I suppose, in a lot of like US films. Like he, he keeps on the exterior um, at the same time as he's like explaining also like you hear on the voice track, like him talking about like people raising the Confederate flag when they're like in the, in the football stadium as he's like making his play and like how, how he just like confronts that and just, you know, keeps on making the play and whatnot as like it cuts with like these very presentational, very like performing for the camera shots where uh, he's posing with a football and then he like poses again with the football in a different position and then again in a different position. And it's very, you can't tell what exactly it is. It's documenting. It's this kind of like this project of like creating like an, an art, an archive centered around blackness and, and labor that is not um, like, especially with the venues that he's, he's working in and, sh- and presenting in like the, you know, the film festival venue and, and just, but in general for like, you know, posterity's sake, like these kind of, images that a lot of film goers and folks in the U.S. are just not accustomed to seeing, especially white film goers. Yeah, it's really great that Criterion is making his work available like that. Yeah, hopefully that'll go a long way towards getting him into people's headspace and and, and people getting to his headspace. Because <laughs> they're films that you, you really have to sit with. I was thinking a little of Wong Bing while you were talking a bit about some of it, but it's obviously a completely different thing. I did watch an eight-hour movie, uh, a rewatch of Showa a couple of weeks ago, but um, this Saturday, maybe I will head over to Park Lanes and see how it came to be. One of the most memorable images in that film is just this image of... um, one of the the black male workers in the factory is a mask on and he's like spray painting the, these like corrugated sheets of metal that are white and he's spray painting them black and it just goes on for like five minutes and i just i mean just the entire symbolic and structural resonances of that literal act of like blackwashing is was just so moving to to watch and it was it comes like like everything in this film, like there's, there's little tiny miracles like that throughout, but like it arrests you like at some point in like the third or fourth hour, I, I feel like every single individual subject's attention will be guided to something different. I mean, there's so much going on in this kind of, in the kind of film. And it reminded me also like a lot of like Ziga Bertov, like Kino I kind of like the films that he did in like the 1920s, you know, where he's like showing you how the bread gets made taking you through the process and i love the bread one that's that's one of my favorites <laughs> yeah but uh you know extend that to eight hours and set it in uh you know 2015 well different conditions obviously but there's the same pulse there's the same kind of like imperative to both like reveal and baffle you about just the extent to which labor is critical in this country in ways that like we're i guess trained to kind of ignore or look over or not even like kind of like dwell upon for like longer than whatever is necessary in order to keep you know the smooth machines of capital a going (laughs) i really like what you just said 
uh, reveal and and baffle because yeah there is more to it than just explaining or showing how something works or how something is made or the component of it in watching his work i do have that feeling of phasing in and out of different perceptive states mm-hmm. you might be responsible for my for scheduling my time now <laughs> by talking <laughs> about this because i had seen it was on criterion and i was like oh god i want to fit that in but uh i had watched it when there was a there was a, one of those crazy snow days that we've been having we were just like snowed in up here in new haven so i figured okay this is the time to sit down and delve into park lanes you have to organize it around like the the work day whatever one work day has and he's cited as saying like lav diaz is actually one of the people that he's thinking of like the most in these kind of things like he's obsessed with like lav diaz movement and an interview where he said like you know what i love is that if it takes 20 minutes for the the peasant to like get from one side of the town to the other in a golf and with the cart, it only takes 20 minutes and like he shows it. And like, I'm obsessed with that is what to paraphrase him. And a lot of that kind of durational aspect of, of Diaz's work is very like present in not just park lanes, but a lot of the, the feature film work that he's been doing recently, like Tonsler park, um, which is the least obvious election movie that you can think of like in recent, in, in recent memory. Cause it's like, like it takes place on like the 2016 election in Charlottesville a couple of months before the Unite the Right rally nonsense that happened there. It's just these like 10 minute long 16 millimeter takes of just the board or like happy, like trying to make themselves like chipper for the workday, like election workers as they're guiding people towards their booths and their polls. And like, again, it's like another film about just like divesting all of like everyday life that we walk through completely divesting it of so much of it's like the symbolic level and just like seeing what happens when all of that gets stripped away you know there's no real like contextualization beyond that part of it that we're in a pole station but it's very hung up on this like question of like duration and time and like how we measure time and it's not the same for everyone you know like how jerry schatzberg measures time is not the same as for kevin jerome everson and it's not the same as for alan renee but I feel like in all three of them, they're shifting temporalities and shifting ways of like gearing your attention towards their films that are you know worthy of people's attention. And maybe Nolan, but I don't know. <laughs> you know, jury's for me, jury's still out with Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that is a excellent way to wrap things up. Perhaps the different strands of time. Um, I think you did it. You did it. Okay, let's try to figure out a way. <laughs> Thanks so much for talking about all of it. You know what I kind of wanted to ask you about? You said you saw Stop. Yes. I don't know if people are even aware of it or if they have seen it at all. So if you want to say anything, I mean, in the spirit of recovering lost labor, this is uh, a filmmaker's labor right. that, uh, for a studio that has been kind of lost to the ages and only available in bootleg. And it's ridiculous because like of the talent in front of and behind the camera, like not just Bill Gunn, the director of one of my favorite films of all time, Personal Problems, but also like Ganjin Hess and uh, novelist and playwright. But, you know, the cinematographer was Owen Roisman, who shot The Exorcist and Taking a Pelham 123 and French Connection. And it was Roisman's first film. 
and Warner Brothers has kept it in a vault for, from what I understand, it's like ridiculous music rights that they could never work out. But because of this disastrous, like bureaucratic kind of bullshit, like they, they've been keeping this weird, wonderful film about the basic mistrust that forms in relationships of any kind. It's sort of like the dark unconscious of like Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Uh, like a man and his wife moved to San Juan, Puerto Rico, and they're staying in the same villa where months ago, the man's brother bizarrely killed his wife um, before he got naked and he killed himself. And this man and this wife just like fight and they slap and they're white, but they're both white. Uh, they fight and they slap and they curse and they want to hurt each other in like both the mental and like the physical realms. And then they meet a mixed swinger couple, uh, a Puerto Rican man and uh, Marlena Clark, who is the lead of Ganjin Hess. And they both, um, the swinger couple turns the white couple onto orgies, acid, and like they just kind of, all of their egos dissolve in this one bizarre night. And it's like, it really is, it's just so like Teorema Neopasolinian. It really is just, it's it's disturbing. It's nightmarish. I guess like I didn't really like Midsommar, but I guess it's the kind of film that like Midsommar is kind of straining to be, just trying to show you the maw of like how impossible it is to relate to somebody on a one to one level. But there's so many crazy things that are going on that have to do with like you know the pressing of gender questions in like the late '60s have to do with race that have to do with like exiledness and like these Americans who are just kind of lost at sea. Sam Wayman, who was the, one of Bill Gunn's close associates, and he, he composed the score for Ganjin Hess, and he appears in one of the greatest moments of cinema in Personal Problems, like also like playing a couple of his own songs, and they're just like so terribly moving. Uh, Sam Wayman has said like he wants people to like contact Warner Brothers, you know, or like message someone if they know somebody and say like, please release this film. There's audience demand, and like has been. He's been on this case for like on Instagram for like ages and like, I don't know, any, any chance to, for me to like say people need to watch stop and like somehow if you're listening and you know who the hell controls the Warner Brothers vault, like, please, like, this is such a major film that has just not gotten and the attention that there's, it just so desperately deserves from a major US filmmaker. So it's great. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. I love it. <laughs> like, <laughs> Words fail to describe just just what it lays out about toxic relationships, the endlessness of it, and like it's it's shot with such late sixties flair, you know, the kind of flair of like Puzzle of a Downfall Child by Schatzberg or like Pasolini kind of films, you know. And it was his first movie, you know, his first directorial effort. And to go from there to Ganjin Hess is just like such a mind flip, you know. Yeah, stop. We're going to have to bang on the vault doors and get that out into the world somehow. I always feel like music rights, I'm sure they're always an obstacle. And I, I know they've, they've held up other things on home video or they can't use the original music. But sometimes it does feel like a bit of an excuse, especially seeing the sort of stuff that is making its way to streaming in the past few years. I mean, mm. I wonder if stop is something. It just often seems that people can put things on streaming or, or finagle those rights in ways that they couldn't for physical media for whatever reason. I, I, maybe stop can somehow find its way out that way. 
Well, Carlos, thank you so much for taking time to talk about all of this. Oh, thank you. Oh, this is wonderful. This is great. I wish you a very happy weekend. Talk to you soon. You're listening to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. This episode, we're going on quite a journey thanks to the voracious viewing habits of my latest guest. His name is Carlos Valladares, and he's a writer I've had the pleasure of editing in the past, and now also a graduate student at Yale University. Carlos is working on a project about the director Jerry Schatzberg, so our conversation starts there with his films Scarecrow and Honeysuckle Rose. Then it's off to the races with Alan René's time-twisting film Je T'aime, Je T'aime, the Looney Tunes cartoons, the warmly detailed New York movies of the late Joan McLean Silver, the incredible experimental work of Kevin Jerome Everson, and for a grand finale, Bill Gunn's great lost studio film, Stop. Let's go to the conversation. Soon. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. The opening music is called Montserrat by The Minarets. For a list of movies discussed in this episode, sign up at rapold.substack.com. Thank you for listening.